Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I almost think half, like 50% of the workout is to train myself mentally. That That's speaking personally. Um, and then the other 50% is is physical. And so I, I do a couple things like... Hey, what's up, guys? Dan the Fitness Man here. We are doing another Elk Shape podcast, bringing on a guy named Jonathan, a.k.a. John Barklow, worked for Sitka Gear. He's been on a handful of podcasts, come to find out. Didn't know that, but I can tell you this. He had been asked questions that I asked him for certain, and he's just a stud of a dude. Uh, total badass, hardworking guy, our kind of people, you know? And I want to thank our sponsors today of the Elk Shape program, which is discipline, delayed gratification, hard work, and not complaining, and being accountable to yourself. Thank you for all that, and uh, you guys help keep the show going forward. This is um, just basically a conversation with me and John. It's recorded, and I think there's a lot of gold here, so enjoy. If you got feedback, questions, comments, concerns, hit me up, elkshape at gmail.com. Otherwise, just uh, follow along the journey, and thanks for listening. Later. Dan, you there? Yes, I am. You there? Yeah, got you. Right on, man. How you doing? I'm doing good. What about you? Good. Busy, but can't complain. It looks like uh, it looks like you're busy. You moved into a new house or something? <clears throat> yeah. So we did that a couple months ago. Just yeah. Just decided to get a little bit more space. Um, we were living in a pretty nice house and. In fact, we built it, and just the backyard was tiny, and the road ended up getting really, really busy. And so we just pulled the plug and said, we'll take anything that's, you know, got potential. So, yeah, I'm in a spot now where, heck, I can shoot out to 100 yards, and neighbors aren't on top of us. And it's it's a house that needs a lot of love, and uh, my wife loves giving the house (laughs) a complete makeover. So that's what we're doing, man. What are you up to? I moved last year, so I don't have to do that this year. Um, 
just uh, trying to enjoy my summer a little more, to be honest with you. I, I pushed off a few trips this summer and um, just, you know, we're, we're kind of months into fall 2020, if you can believe that. And um, just trying to get some hunts and things lined up, you know, for this fall. So with Brinker leaving, it kind of threw a little bit of wrench in my works. And uh, I'm certainly not doing all the marketing, but I am doing some of it or consulting on it a little more. So, yeah, it's going good, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm happy for him. He's, uh, yeah. I've known David a long time, and uh, I didn't think he would ever leave Sika. I didn't think that would happen, but I, I get it. I understand people got to, you know, chase their dream, do what's best for them and their family, and, uh, yeah. So, yeah, I actually did think he would leave. I, I was giving him at the most two years. And the only reason I say that is because him and his wife are so close to their family. That's all back in Oregon. Yeah. I just assumed at some point in time that with his kids starting to grow up, you know, obviously into the school age that, that they may just decide to move back. But I just didn't think it would happen this quick. Shoot. Yeah. I mean, it happened so i mean sika is a cool company man i've i've i knew jonathan really early when he first started it and it's been crazy to see what it's done and what it's doing and uh, how long have you been with sika three and a half years now it seems like longer than that <laughs> it feels like longer than that sometimes way longer than that that's crazy yeah how did they how did they get you i mean how did they find you you know, Dan, it was it was just it was the craziest thing. Um, sometimes, you know, you don't think there's opportunities in actually until you start to look. Sometimes, and I was getting ready to get out of the military, and I just I, it was funny. I just decided that literally one night I'm like I'm going to go into the hunting industry, and the only company I want to work for is Sitka. And what I didn't even realize at the time is that my job as the big game product manager didn't even exist. And, uh, so I'm the first person to hold the role. So as you can imagine when they started and Jonathan was the only guy, not the only guy, but you know, kind of the guy, Yeah, he was, he was kind of doing my job and he was doing, you know, then he started doing whitetail and obviously that became too much. So, uh, long story short, I had a friend reach out and say, Hey, I really think you should apply for this. And I hadn't even, I hadn't even gotten as far as even looking right on, on their website. I applied and, and long story short or long story long, it took 11 months, uh, different interviews and stuff. And I transitioned out of the military and right into this job. So I, it, pure luck, man. Huh? Pure luck. Yeah. Sounds like it was meant yeah. to be. That's a long process, 11 months. Um, and it luck, is. You had a laser focus on what you wanted, which is huge. So, I mean, interviews and all that stuff, did you ever get like dejected or discouraged along the way? Or were you just like, no, this is going to happen? You know, I, I actually didn't. Um, in that 11 months, I was living in Alaska at the time. And in that 11 months, I moved down to Utah. And I actually took a job. Uh, believe it or not, in Seattle, I was commuting back and forth. A friend had asked me to to come and help him at a company called Beyond Clothing. And what we were doing there is building really high-end clothing for special operations units. Yes. So very similar to what I was doing. That's how I knew the gentleman. And uh, so anyways, Gore, you know, Gore called me because they're the ones that initially screened. And then the folks at SICA called me and we started chatting. And I, I got a phone call back and they're like, you know what? 
they're like, you're such a great candidate and your name keeps coming up, but the answer's not no. Like we were definitely interested. They said, it's just not now. And what I didn't know at the time, but I know now is that they went back and kind of recrafted the job description because, you know, like most people, you kind of want the world, you want person to have an MBA in this and a PhD in that, you know, and 17 years of experience here. And, and, um, and one day they just called me. As a matter of fact, I was driving to Kansas. No, I was driving to Northern Missouri to go on a whitetail hunt with some buddies. And they called me and they said, Hey, um, we'd love for you to come to Bozeman and, and meet Jonathan and interview. And I said, well, I'm on a whitetail hunt and I'll be back in two weeks. And sure enough, man came up here and it, you know, it only took a week out. Actually, it didn't even take a day to be quite honest after I interviewed and they're like, yeah, we'd like to make you an offer. So, um, it didn't discourage me cause I just, I just felt like, I just felt like it was going to happen. I, I don't, I don't know how else to explain it to you, but. Well, okay. Well, you're three and a half years in pretty sweet gig, but like any dream job, there's going to be parts of it that aren't as exciting or, you know, just aren't the sexiest parts of the job. Let's not talk about those. Let's talk about maybe your favorite parts of working for Sika and, and developing awesome gear is what I'm going to call it. Like, what's your favorite part, man? So what's cool is, and I had a, one of my friends came down from Alaska. We went antelope hunting last year and you know, he's, he kind of hadn't been around me too much since I'd come down here and gotten this job. And he says, you never stop working. And I said, well, that's maybe the way you perceive it. But I said, I don't feel like I ever really am working. And what I really meant by that was my mind never shuts down. I'm always thinking about either hunting or making hunting gear better or how I can, you know, what I'm going to do for the next year or what field test I'm going to do or, you know, how I can maybe better evaluate something. And so it's just my life. It's what I do. I've kind of done it for so long. So really that is a great part of the job. The other part is talking to, talking to a lot of different people. I've met a lot of great folks and, you know, I like to say my job is kind of like a filter and, I talk to all these people and, you know, everybody's got great ideas and feedback and, and so I have to filter it, but to take ideas either from my own head or somebody else's and to create something and like make a tangible product that I then see people, you know, using and getting so stoked about, I mean, that's, you know, maybe the only creative thing I do in my life, but it's pretty, pretty meaningful to me. Um, you know, when people sit there and go, dude, that, that hoodie was the best thing ever, you know, and I was able to kill this bull. And, um, that just keeps me coming back and, and wanting to do more and more and more. So that part gives me the most fulfillment. I think, um, you know, I also get to bring some of my little crazy dreams to life and, and, uh, you know, and just see the enthusiasm that people have for it. So that, that creativity is really what I get stoked on. What, okay, what would you kind of just call your job and, and how it works, like day-to-day and, and balancing everything? You, you know, really high level is just like you said, like, you know, John, what are we doing? What's, what's the next great thing we're doing for big game? You know, what resources do you need? Um, we're fairly autonomous from Gore in most of our kind of professional lives, but what people may or may not know is that 
the facilities that Gore has back east that we as Sitka have access to, uh, climate chambers, sound chambers, rain rooms, um, you know, these amazing uh, textile engineers, like, you know, we can leverage that as a resource. And so you kind of get an idea. If you have fabric questions, we have people that can help us with that. You start to build something, we can go back and test in a lab. Um, you know, we have, and some of the videos we've shown in the past, we can put, uh, you know, treadmills and things like this in climate chambers and make the temperature cold or make the temperature warm, make it rain or snow inside and, and all these cool things that, you know, not a lot of other companies have access to. Um, but for the most part, you know, and, and it's, it's not a challenge. They don't say it as a challenge, but I, I guess it's maybe our, our driving principle is we want to make the best stuff. And so we're just constantly, I'm asking myself that other people are asking, you know, me or themselves, like, is this the best we can do? You know, is there something better we can do? Um, you know, we, I, I, I talked about design philosophy the other week with somebody that was, uh, that was in, you know, asking somebody in the industry. And I said, really, when I sit down and, and we have a concept and I write a design brief and we start picking what we're going to build it out of and where we're going to build it, I have a general price that I want to try to achieve, something that I think is you know attainable in the market and people would be willing to pay to get the, the, the quality we're going to deliver. But I'll tell you, sometimes we build stuff that's so expensive, I just, I mean, it's incredible stuff. I just can't go to market with it. But at the end of the day, it's like, if I build a pant and it's the best, like the Apex pant, we designed our own textile. Like it's the only place it exists in the world. We developed that because we couldn't find a textile that was quiet enough, durable enough. So we designed that. I mean, that costs money, right? And so by the time we got done and I put all the bells and whistles on, it's like, this is what the price of it is. And I said, I think it's the best stocking pant in the world. So I'm going to market with it. And, um, and that's pretty cool because the business supports that. I mean, that's really what it's in our DNA, um, and, and we strive to achieve that in everything. Where and when and how did you get started elk hunting? I know you're an over-the-counter guy a lot. What's that look like? How did that process start? Let's get into your elk hunting background. You know, it's funny. So uh, I grew up in Ohio, right, and nobody in my family hunted, so kind of a self-taught archery hunter for whitetail very steep learning curve. Um, but I started, believe it or not, I started, let's see, what year would that be? Mm, maybe 2002. I actually started hunting elk and up in Alaska where I lived, we had the ability to hunt Roosevelt elk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, it was really, it was really unique. You know, it was super cool. It was somewhat like it is in the Pacific Northwest, except you know, we had big brown bears running around <laughs> and, um, and Alaska really crafted that season more for opportunity than they did for trophy hunting. So you didn't get to hunt during the rut, <clears throat> which means there was really no bugling action. So it was more like spot and stock hunting. And so you can imagine, you know, where you live or, you know, even farther West of you, you know, trying to spot and stock Roosevelt elk, you know, it gets a little, gets a little tough with the terrain. Um, so I started doing that and really kind of got addicted to that. And then I really wanted to branch out. So I started flying down to the lower 48 and started hunting Rocky mountain elk, uh, Colorado. 
And I don't know, for some reason I've, you know, knock on wood, I've been, I've been really successful in the elk woods, not necessarily shooting the biggest bull, but just having success, uh, on bulls. And, uh, you know, and then of course, once I moved down the lower 48 and I could concentrate specifically on that, you know, I'd been building points and states for, I don't know, 15 years. So I started cashing them out and I went on a, we went on a Wyoming hunt, me and a guy, um, thinking two, two years ago, maybe we went down for 15 days into the big horns and, and, uh, and, and that kind of stuff. So anyways, that, <clears throat> so that's my, my elk kind of hunting pedigree. And, and honestly, because of the way I started, you know, that, that kind of primacy, you know, the way you start is kind of the way you, you tend to go. Um, and, and maybe you'll get into this, but you know, I'm not a big, I'm not a guy who, who bugles a lot. You know, I, I, I bugle when I have to, but I'm not a guy that like does a lot of setups and, and calls out in, I kind of like pursue them a little bit more. And so, you know, it's, it's worked for me. It's, it's kind of my, I guess my style now, but, um, yeah. So how did that style evolve? I think we should just get right to it. I mean, uh, I'm in the same boat. I, I am not a born and raised outdoors guy where those guys just bugle and hike until they find someone who wants to play ball and play their game. That's not me at all. In fact, I'd rather find the bulls that are on their own bugling, you know, depending on the time of year. But generally speaking, I like it when the bulls are fired up on their own. And yeah, it, yeah. It, it can happen anytime in September, in my opinion. But how did that process evolve? Because I'm sure you watched maybe. So I started elk hunting about the same time as you. And, and the resources that I had, because no one really elk hunted near me, was think maybe the internet a little bit, like maybe forums, but. There was no like social media, so I don't think YouTube was invented yet, and so it was like VHS, Primos videos. Oh yeah, and uh, dude, holy shit! When you finally learn that that's not real, uh, that's not that's not the way it is on the real over the counter tags. Like that's not where they're hunting. That's not the experience you're gonna get. That's not how it works. When did you, when did it dawn on you? Um, probably three years in. Cause what was happening, Dan was, you know, I was hunting these rosies and then I, you know, I lived on Kodiak Island. So we had a really healthy, uh, blacktail population. So I, I loved hunting them in, in August, it was either August or November and August was, you know, basically all spot and stock. And I really just really enjoyed that so much. So I started mule deer hunting. I started coming down, down South and mule deer hunting. And then I realized that I was having success on mule deer spot and stock. I was having success on um, these blacktail, and I was starting to have success on Roosevelt. All I knew was the Primos videos, but I didn't know anybody. There, you know, Elk 101 and all these things didn't exist, and I didn't know anybody who called. And quite frankly, even though I had a hoochie mama and a bugle, I was kind of scared to use them. And I'm like, I, I don't. I, I just said, I, I just don't think I need. I, I'm not, I'm not dissing anybody who uses them. Believe me, I, I definitely use them now, but, but I'm like, I, I just think that I'm for me and, and the way maybe I'm wired. If I can get, if I can get an elk to bugle, I can, I can start moving in on them. And I've been really successful. Uh, and, and I agree with you when, when they're, you know, a couple bulls together or a single bull, like that's a real dangerous situation for that animal because without all those eyes of the cow, you know, I just, I, I, I can just get in there and, and seem like I make it happen. And, you know, when you hunt in bear country a lot, especially where I was, you know, you could see bears and you just, you just try to avoid those animals. And, 
And, um, you know, you didn't really want to call you, you really want to be careful about how you called. And so I just, you know, it's all, you're a, you're a product of your environment. And, um, so I, I've, I've actually never had that experience where, you know, a guy's dropped back and called a bull to 15 or 20 yards in front of me. I've, I've never had that type of elk experience. That's, that's so interesting because I'm in the same boat. I've, I probably killed a lot of elk for the few years I've elk hunted them. But the one time I had somebody call for me, it just happened to be a guy named Larry D. Jones. No. <laughs> and you're not going to turn that down. You no, know. no. But we're talking out of I don't know twenty something elk. One call in the rest, pretty much sneaking in on my own or calling in myself a little bit. But yeah, so yeah. so that process does. I think that'll help speed up a lot of guys' learning curve, and that's what this podcast is all about: is kind of overcoming that learning curve. Mine was a steep one, man. I didn't kill an elk for I think it took four seasons of tag soup till I got my first bull. And I yeah. feel like I kind of cheated because I drew a New Mexico tag and I killed a bull, my first archery elk uh, in New Mexico. But then I still didn't kill an Idaho elk until like 2008 or nine. So it took like seven years of Idaho tag soup until I got an actual Idaho bull. And then mm-hmm. since then, kind of put it all together and it's very it's been consistent. So it hurt. I've- I've heard that's the average is seven years for a guy to kill his first bull or gal, you know? Yeah. Yes. And I was doing with, that. Oh, anyways, but yeah. With a, yeah. So it's, it can be really steep. Um, the next podcast I'm dropping is actually with a guy who, um, no, he's not in the industry. No one's ever heard of him, but he's got a great story. He, he and his team, those three guys went out their very first year and one guy got a shot. One guy killed a bull. And he didn't, and we just—I just interviewed him, and I was blown away, John, at the due diligence he did as a brand new elk hunter leading up to the season. This guy had top-notch gear. He had, you know, I think he was rocking Sika gear, and he had an XO pack, and his buddy had a Stone Glacier. They had Onyx maps. He had—he was a member of GoHunt.com. He was very wow. acquainted with. Um, all the research he did online with all the hunting forums and and he was watching YouTube videos and then just pouring over Google Earth. I mean, it took me a long time to get these tools dialed. He did it in his first year. So technology can totally help you. I'm still kind of in that old school trying to le- learn how to use more and more technology. So how much time do you spend e-scouting? That's a pretty hot topic this time of year for areas that you've never been into or over-the-counter opportunities you're looking for. How much time do you spend behind a desktop? You know, I, I don't. Uh, I don't spend that much time. I definitely, I definitely fly the terrain I'm looking at with Google Earth, and you know, anybody who's done it will tell you that um, it always looks different when you're on the ground, right? But I'm, I'm just, I'm looking for terrain features. I'm looking for different cover, um, and then I'm a little bit. I'm a little bit old school as well. Well, I'm not a little bit old school, Dan. I'm a lot old school. Um, I, if once I figure out where I want to go, I will actually buy a paper map and I'll get it to the scale that I want, which is normally about a one to 50,000 scale. And I will start pouring over the map and actually looking at the topographic lines. And, and that to me gives me the, 
just because I've done it for so long, but it gives me a better idea of the true nature of that terrain. Um, and, and really where I want to go and what the true distance is and what the angle of the slopes are. Uh, I definitely, I definitely have a GPS and I, you have to have a chip if you're coming out West, like you've got to have some kind of chip to tell you property lines and, and boundaries, et cetera. But I will also take that map then <clears throat> and I'll have that map. And, and generally speaking, I'll use that map to my advantage when I'm in an area and say I got a bull or um, a, a herd of uh, elk up on a hill and I'm trying to maneuver, like if I can look at the map and look at the contour lines and look to see where drainages are and kind of kind of guess what the wind's doing, um, that's how I use the map to my advantage as, as opposed to just like walking straight at them. It actually may be more beneficial if I hook, you know, half a mile around to the left or the south um, and, and come in them at a, at a different angle. And you, you're a lot of times you're not going to know that if you just look at a, at a, at an aerial view, at least for me anyways. Um, so I, I use technology, but I don't, I, I'm not, I'm not using it like a lot of guys, to be honest with you. And I'm probably missing out on some stuff. I, I'm not going to admit I'm not. Um, but I have a system that, that I have a system that's working for me. Um, I'm probably not the best resource to be like, you know, teaching other people how to do it unless they want to learn how I'm doing it. But there's so many resources out there. It's amazing nowadays, right? I mean, it's, it's awesome. What's what people have access to. Yeah. It's almost overwhelming, but let's get in, let's get into topography reading a little bit. Let's say you got yourself a general tag in Montana, or maybe you picked up an over the counter in Colorado or Idaho. Those are kind of those three, my top three States for over the counter stuff. And all three of them have way different terrain topography. I would say Montana is definitely the most diverse, whereas mm-hmm. Idaho, it's kind of diverse, but really it's steep. And then Colorado's just real, real high country timberline and a lot of the over-the-counter units. So let's look at topography. What are some key features that the elk are just unequivocally going to be attracted to, things that guys could look at? Because there is a cool website called CalTopo where you can get free topo maps of anywhere you're going and print them out. And I do. Huh. I print them out. And I am like you. I like topography over anything. So what are we looking for for these noobs that are maybe now they figured out where they're going as far as the unit goes, but they need to start pouring over topo? What are we looking for? Well, you know, I'm looking for so I'm looking for my access point. So you know. How far can I drive? What kind of road it is? Where's the trailhead? Um, you know, I like to look at that satellite imagery to see what the what the vegetation's like or or not like. You know, obviously you're looking for you know uh, timbered north faces. You're looking for parks. Obviously, if you can find any kind of wallow, sometimes you can find you know depending on what you're looking at, you can find wallows on satellite imagery, but you can also find them on detailed topographic maps you know if you're if you're really paying attention you'll see springs you know say Mm -hmm. spring or something like that but you know if you find something that looks good say on let's just say google earth and it's north facing timber and you know like i said it always looks different when you're on the ground and then i pull out that map and i look at those topographic lines and i'm like man that is like you know that's a 40 degree slope on north facing timber um you know that you just, you got to know what you're getting yourself into because that, that may almost be like, 
it may be a great place to go because nobody else can actually physically go there and might give you motivation to train. But you also might go, I don't know if I'm physically capable of actually getting in there, getting it done and getting an animal out. Um, so I, that's where I start to look. Um, I can apply the distance and, you know, everybody looks at distance kind of, you know, it's like, okay, I need to go three miles, but if you're going three miles and it's up and down, up and down, up and down. Um, but I look at the map and I say, yeah, but if I, if I walk this contour, I can get there in maybe four miles, but I only, you know, have half as much elevation gain to get there. That's going to be a huge benefit to be, you know, uh, more efficient and not as tired when you get there. And, and, and unless you can see those contours, it's really hard, you know, to, you re- I, I don't, I can't contour navigate off Google earth. You know, I can't, and a lot of guys don't even know how to read the lines anymore, which I, I find a little bit sad, but you know, if I, if I can look at t- topographic lines, I can terrain navigate around features and really find really efficient ways in and out. Um, but I also know the, the steepness of the terrain that I'm hunting. And then, you know, with that aerial imagery, I can see, is it vegetated? How much is it sparsely vegetated? You know, where are the parks? Um, so that's kind of the stuff I'm looking for. Uh, I also look quite frankly to get as far away from any road that I can. Um, you know, and that's not always the case, but those are always places that kind of attract me. Okay. Now, so the when you're looking at these lines, obviously the closer they are, the steeper they are. The, you can kind of see where something might funnel or even those like saddles or bench, Saddle. saddles and yep. benches. And the elk seem to have an affinity. Do you think there's a sweet spot on slope angle that elk kind of will like, generally speaking? I know that's a tough question, but yeah. do, do you feel like there's a sweet spot there? I just think if you can find those those north faces and they have those benches, those nice benches, you know, down off the top, you know, as you know, they, they tend to love those things. As opposed to just a, a really, you know, steep face with a lot of blowdown and not a lot of benches, um, one, it's hard. It's just harder than hell to get around in there and, and even be sneaky for me anyways. For sure. Uh, you know, but... Yeah, I don't know. I I look for more moderate slopes. I won't even apply a number necessarily, but I look for moderate slopes, but I look for benches. I look for, you know, if they, if they have, I I just kind of look at it. Like if I was walking, how would I walk from the North face around to that park? You know, how would I, how would I do it? What's the path of least resistance? Cause you know, animals for the most part seem to, to do that. You know, if you walk game trails, I think that's a great way to learn how animals walk and kind of their behavior is to walk game trails. They're not going up to just go down. They're, they're going to contour around. And so if you look at that, you can kind of start to say, okay, if they are bedded on the North face, and I think they're going to come around to these parks, you know, where are the paths of least resistance for them to go? Is there a saddle? You know, is there, is there a bench that wraps all the way around to that park? Um, Is there a pinch point somewhere I can take advantage of? And, and that's, those are kind of the things that I'm looking for. Where were you when I first started elk hunting? Man, I had no concept that animals 
not are lazy, but they just like look for the path of least resistance. And I was Johnny, go straight down, straight up, straight down, straight up, off fingers, anything. I did not understand elk trails and systems. And and maybe we take it for granted, but if anybody's new out there, I hope you're turning your hearing aid up because that is huge and kind of understanding the how the elk want to travel especially if you're going to pursue them like we've been talking about where you kind of almost run silent run deep and you're pretty mobile and you just dog the herd until you can kind of get them to slow down to their bedding area or whatever or wherever a bull stops to fight another bull or run one off or hook a cow there's a lot of opportunities in there to slip in and get your shot so um, yeah learning well you're you're super fit right dan and i mean i I work at it anyways year round but that's not to say i want to go and just burn up all my energy and i for you know for a long time i felt that if i wasn't like seriously kicking my own butt and wearing myself ragged that i was doing something wrong and then i you know and i'm probably just with age maybe a little wisdom but i doubt that um (laughs) You know, you try to start to do things a little more efficiently, but you also, when I slowed down a little bit, that's when I started going, wait a second, these, uh, these, like I'm going this way and the elk are going the opposite way. I should walk where the elk walk. Right. And then I'm like, well, this is actually pretty efficient. They're, they're not, you know, and at the same time I was actually teaching navigation. So I, you know, kind of put it all together, but, but now, you know, you believe me, anybody who hasn't done it, elk hunting is incredibly, uh, you know, tiring, it consumes a lot of energy and, and anything you can do to, to kind of be more efficient, I think is just going to help. It's going to make you it, the experience more enjoyable, no matter what. Um, and ultimately I think it's going to make you more successful. I, I couldn't agree more. Well, since we have you here and I think you're one of the best resources when it comes to sifting through gear, we don't have to name brand anything, but we had to speak some generalities. I preach on this podcast that All the rookies or the people that aren't consistent yet on success should potentially backpack elk hunt for whatever, two, three, four, five, six days at a time, whatever they can muster and sleep wherever they end up when it gets dark just to have a leg up or an advantage and not waste that precious commodity energy traveling from a said base camp every day to where the elk are at or to a said spike camp so can we go through and you can be as general or specific as you want your system for backpack hunting elk and we can break down sleep systems um, water systems and just give guys some options of kind of what's worked for you you you've done it all yeah so uh, i'm a big proponent of synthetic base layers and you know i've i've said that a bunch of places but Um, and, and there's nothing wrong with wool. So it's not, I'm not anti-wool. I'm just kind of pro synthetic, but I I like synthetic base layers. And even if I'm not wearing some, you know, any kind of base layer bottom, like long john, so to speak, I always bring them because, you know, as you know, weather in the mountains can change. I mean, last September was the most crazy weather I'd ever seen in September. It snowed, it rained, it snowed again, there were fires, it got hot, you know, the elk didn't know what to do. So if I'm going in, even overnight, I'll wear a base layer top, something thin, and if I'm not wearing long john bottoms, I'll bring them. And then I wear some kind of uh, synthetic, you know, honey pants, so polyester or uh, nylon, something like that that absorbs very little water, real durable 
Um, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of wool socks or some kind of blend. And I tend to bring one pair of socks for every two days. So if I'm going for say four days, I'll bring two pairs of socks, but I'll rotate them every night. Mm -hmm. Um, yep. And then for a jacket, I'm pretty, I'm a pretty big fan. If I'm going to bring a jacket, I bring some kind of like wind, wind stopper, uh, type soft shell jacket. And to me anyways, uh, it's kind of twofold for me. Um, if, if it's windy, I can put it on, but it's going to breathe far superior to any kind of, uh, rain gear, right. That's not going to breathe nearly as well. Um, it's going to keep my, my body temp up for as, for as light as that product is. And then most of the time they have some kind of DWR treatment on it. So if it does start to, you know, your glass and it starts to do a light rain or light snow, you don't have to pull your rain gear out right away. You can put that on and still go on your stock, et cetera. So I'm a big fan of like some kind of wind stopper layer. Uh, and then I always bring a puffy jacket. Now, depending on the time of year, it'll depend on the kind of, of uh, puffy jacket. But again, I'm, I'm, and I'll tell you why here at the end, but I'm, I'm real pro synthetic. So some kind of synthetic loft insulation. Uh, and then rain gear. Uh, I always bring some type of rain gear, especially if I'm going multiple days. I just have to bring it because the weatherman's not right all the time. Um, but if I'm going out for the day or maybe an overnight, I have a pretty good indication of what the forecast is going to do. Maybe I'll just bring a jacket and, and not the pants. But what I'm really trying to do when I build my system, Dan, is I'm trying to build the most durable, uncompromising system that I can so that if something goes wrong, and, and what I, no, I shouldn't say wrong, if something, if the weather turns or, you know, I get trapped away from my tent or, you know, I fall in a creek or my buddy does, that I'm not, my life's not going to be at risk or I'm not going to have to leave the mountain because my system's not going to perform now. So I found for the vast majority of people that synthetics are the better way to go as opposed to like down puffy jackets and things like that, because you just have to spend that much more time paying attention to those products, right? They're not as durable. They're not as, um, uncompromising. Um, now, you know, I'm not going to say I don't use down and I don't use wool and all these kind of things, but I'm very selective. Like I have a quiver of stuff and I've done it long enough that I'm like, Oh, I'm going to Arizona to hunt elk. It never rains there, so I can get away with down. You know, I, uh, me and Adam Foss. Let's see, it was a couple years ago, but me and Adam Foss went down and hunted uh, mule deer with Greg Krogh in Arizona, and we just threw sleeping bags and ground pads down on the ground and and slept out for six nights. Never brought a tent, you know, <clears throat> had a down jacket, but I was very confident in the environment and confident in my abilities. Um, so that's the clothing and then always a beanie can't be stressed enough. You have to bring a beanie even in the summertime. And when you go to lay down and go to sleep, you can get away with, you know, a lighter sleeping bag. If you bring a beanie to put on your head, I like to say cap the chimney. It just keeps more heat in. Um, and then always some kind of gloves because if it does get cold or your hands get wet and if you can't, use your hands and you lose dexterity, you can't start to do simple things like zip up your jacket, uh, use a lighter to start a fire, you know, those kind of things. Um, and then for me, 
The sleeping bag is a critical component that I consider part of my sleeping system. And I never look at that sleeping bag, I say, in isolation. I look at that sleeping bag as an extension of my clothing system. So, you know, I've done some videos in the past of, you know, getting wet and cold weather and getting in the sleeping bag. So I want that sleeping bag, you know, to be my sanctuary. So at the end of the day, when I'm super tired, I can crawl in there and go to sleep. It's going to keep me warm enough. But if I'm wet, which you can be wet just from sweat, doesn't have to be from rain or falling in a river, I want to be able to get in there and dry out. And I'm a huge proponent of sleeping in my clothes. If I'm going to invest all this money in a technical clothing system, I want that clothing system to be working for me 24 hours a day. And if I can wear my clothes at night, now mind you, I don't necessarily wear every single thing, but you know, like I won't wear my rain gear to bed, but I'll wear my puppy jacket, my pants and, and, and base layers to bed. Um, I can get away with a lighter sleeping bag now because my clothing system is helping me extend, you know, say a 30 degree sleeping bag, you know, in Italy, in, in Montana, we can, you know, hunt to the second week of October. So I can easily go to the second week of October. Um, so I've talked for a while, but is that, is that kind of definitely I'm the same guy. I am, I think straight up it, the leaner you are, the more likely you should sleep in your gear. I've been doing that forever because I will get cold without it. It's definitely, it's a system that works together. And, uh, I think that 30 degree bag range is kind of my sweet spot for September. And I'm not a quilt guy. I'm definitely not at all. Um, I'm not a quilt guy either. Tried it, didn't like it. So just it's not for me, but hey, to each his own. But I, yep. I'm with you, man. And and the beanie thing can't get overlooked. And the way I could probably help paint that picture from a guy who owns a CrossFit gym is that CrossFit gyms are industrial buildings, and they don't you know retain heat very well. The the R rating's not good there. And so I have people <laughs> working out in Spokane, Washington, in the winter when it is freaking cold. I mean. The barbells are cold to the touch in the first class of the day at 5 in the morning. Yeah, yeah. These people are doing a CrossFit workout, and when they're done, you can literally watch their heads steam. That is yep. where heat is released the fastest. And um, I've never heard anyone really just say, you know, put a lid on the chimney, but I hope that is a golden nugget for those that don't want to. I mean, sleep should never be compromised when you're elk hunting. As far as when it's time to get in there and actually get to sleep, that's yeah. when that's when you're going to regenerate, and that is definitely going to dictate your the next day. And I've always talked kind of that I don't sleep that much during September, and it's true. But when I do need sleep, I I, I don't want to sit there and toss and turn. I want to just shut the lights out and be gone and wake up to that alarm the next day. So that that was good. Let's talk a little bit about water systems with kind of what 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 do you found that worked best for you. Because water is pivotal in the backcountry, yeah. and staying hydrated will dictate your physiology as well as how, how well you stay warm. So go into that if you can. Yeah, so it's critical. So I'll start with um, the, the bottles and bladders I bring. So traditionally, I roll with one uh, Nalgene bottle, like a liter uh, type bottle, right? And then I will roll, generally, I'll bring like a four liter bladder with me. Um, that's, you know, sometimes empty. Sometimes I just have a, a liter riding around in it or two, you know, so I, I can hunt and hike with two or three liters of water. But the reason I bring the bladder is because if I know where I'm going and I've got my map 
And I'm like, you know, your dog in the herd, like you had talked about, which I'm a, a huge proponent of. But if I come across a water source during the day, I am not going to walk by it without filling up. Because how many times, you know, do you do you get where, you know, you run out of daylight and, and you're just going to bed down and you don't have water? You're kind of stuck. You know, if you have dehydrated food, you're not going to be able to eat. Uh, you definitely have to rehydrate and you don't want to have to backtrack a mile or drop, you know, 500 or a thousand feet to go to the nearest water source because you weren't able to collect enough, uh, to get into camp and five liters for me. I mean, that's a little bit, it's a lot, but in the winter, especially cause I used to do a lot in the winter, like when you start melting snow and all this, or, you know, uh, boiling water for, for water, you know, purification and that, um, you know, you want to, you want to do it once. And so I want to have the ability to store a lot of water if I have the opportunity. So I'm normally rolling with the ability to hold five liters of water. Um, most of the time I will bring a pump. Uh, the pump does a couple things for me. One, it, it filters out bad things like Giardia. Uh, but the other one is it, it filters out, um, the debris that's in the water. So you don't have, you know, a bunch of floaties and, and chunks in your water. Um, I've, in Alaska, I used tabs sometimes. Um, there were places in Alaska I, I never filtered my water if I was up high. I just drank right out of the streams, which I don't condone down here especially. But I think for the most part, a pump, and there's all kinds of great pumps out there right now, but I think a pump or uh, a system that has like a three-liter bladder with a hose and a, and a filter in the center <clears> – <throat> that you fill up with, say, your contaminated water, and then that just by gravity uh, flows through the filter and goes into another three-liter bladder. Those are super efficient, really good. But I think you really have to plan it. It really depends on where you're hunting. Like you talked about New Mexico. You know, New Mexico might be a completely different situation than, say, hunting in northern Idaho, right, as far as it coming to water. So, um, again, that's where if you can look at maps or look at imagery and, you know, see if there's water sources, it's really, you have to plan that, uh, or you're going to walk in, have no water and have to turn around and walk back out. <clears throat> I love it. And I really like what you said about having, you know, kind of the dirty bag and the clean bag and there's kind of a, a gravity fed system. I kind of switched to something like that a few years ago. I think it's a Sawyer. Don't quote yep. me, but I think that's what it is. And I know guys use the pens and all that stuff, but to me, if I can just get water right before I'm going to bed or right when I'm done hunting, I kind of remembered where a creek was, fill up that yep. dirty, get it hanging in a tree, use the rest of my water that night for the freeze-dried meal, and then wake up in the morning ready to hunt and get after it with no yeah. and to me my biggest advantage elk hunting has always been no hesitation i don't hunt with usually anybody and so uh -huh. all my decisions are extremely fast there's no powwows there's no what do you think we should do it's just you kind of go with your gut and you you act on it and having your water ready to go in the morning is critical but do you think it's unrealistic you know advice for me to ha tell guys that are new in that learning curve to, to backpack hunt? No, I don't. Matter of fact, I think you should tell them to go backpacking when it's the off season. Cause that's an awesome place to like, not only, you know, train and, and, and get fit, but you know, see if the packs work and see if your boots are working, work the hydration systems, work your food, see what works so that, you know, 
everybody wants to, you know, they sit there and go, Oh, I'm going to bring like, I'm only going to subsist on bars for three days of elk hunting. It's like, well, go backpack hunt and bring nothing but food bars and see if you can do it. Um, cause you, you know, you may not be able to, um, I, I think it's, I, I actually think people should do it. And if you're back, if you do, let's just say you do two or three backpack trips during the summer, you know, go fish or go scout or whatever the case may be. By the time hunting season comes, all you're doing is putting broadheads on your arrows. And it's basically the same thing you've been doing. Like you've already trained up to that point, your system's dialed. It's not the unknown. You're, you're, you're knowing how your GPS is working. Um, you know, so I, I think it's, I think it's awesome, uh, advice. That's cool. So separation is in the preparation. It's called backpack practice. Do it. So speaking of preparation, how old are you, John? I'm 49 years young. Damn, Damn it. Dan. Why'd you have to ask that? Cause I got, <laughs> cause I got guys on here that are the same age and yeah. they, I post what I do online for free and yep. what I do is not for everybody. And I'm not even as hardcore as I used to be. You know, I used to be a guy that was like literally trying to get back to the CrossFit games every year. That's not me anymore. Kids have slowed me down, but I still do, you know, basically CrossFit, basically. And uh, I sprinkle in some backpack hiking and I shoot probably way more than the average guy because I'm not. I am probably considered, I consider myself to be below average archer. I, I just feel better when I've shot my bow several times a week. So I just, I'm one of those guys kind of paranoid about not being successful. So I try to just mitigate anything that could go wrong, including shooting a, a lot and yep. um, being fit. But I want to know a guy your age. So you're kind of in between my age. I'm 30, I'm going on 37 this summer. And then my dad, who's you know, will tag along with me sometimes. He's in just early 60s, going to be retiring here soon. I know what he does. What does a guy at 49 do to get ready for the elk hunting season? Yeah, so let me let me back. Before I get to that, let me back up and give you a little uh, history. So back in, it was, I'm guessing 2003 is the first time I was introduced to CrossFit. It was either 2000, I think it was 2003, but it was pretty early on. Like not a lot of people knew about it you know, guys in the military and obviously guys that were just really into fitness were kind of, you know, getting into it. So I, I started and, and it changed my life. I mean, just the whole, the whole protocol, it just changed my life and the way I worked out and the way I looked at fitness. Um, and you know, we, I mean, we adopted it into the military. It's just an amazing thing. So, you know, as, as time goes on, uh, you know, and, and, you know, your, your joints start getting a little sore and, and this and that, you know, you just, I've modified the protocol, but I would say I do CrossFit esque workouts three, three times a week, something like that, maybe four. But what I try to do is I, I try to be functionally fit. And so I do a lot of things with sandbags. I do a lot of things with kettlebells, you know, Turkish get-ups and swings. I do a lot of ruck hiking. I don't run anymore, but I definitely do a lot of ruck hiking. I want my legs, my feet, all my joints to be to be ready, my back. I, I want my hips to know what, you know, 60 pounds feels like. Now, I don't carry 60 pounds all the time. I have three different rucks right now. I think one's, so one's 32, one's at 50, and one's at 75, and then depending on the day, I can moderate the terrain or the pace or the distance. 
Um, so I do a lot of rucking, but I, I try to be really functionally fit. And I, and I, I'm taking that from all the background that I had, you know, obviously you, you have a lot more, but all the background that I had in CrossFit, I've taken that and adopted it, um, to, to my physical fitness, you know, and I like doing it. I mean, it's not, it's not a chore to me, you know, like you, I mean, it's, it's your life. It's kind of what you do. Um, and then I also shoot probably more than, I don't know about most people, but you know, if, if I'm in town, I'm shooting six to seven days a week, um, at 3d targets, I'm shooting year round. If I have to shoot inside spots, then that's what I do. But I, I, again, I want to be, I want to be ready, um, for the, for the call, right. When I'm, when I'm, when I'm, uh, when I'm ready to go hunting. So I'll also kind of right, right about now I'll start to fold in and I see you do it. It seems like quite a bit as well, but I'll start to fold in what, you know, we kind of called stress courses, um, in the military, but I'll have a pack, I'll do something physical. I'll have my bow set up, you know, on the range. I'll go do something physical like run or swing kettlebells or do push-ups, And then I'll shoot a certain distance and say, I'll shoot three arrows and then I'll go do something else. And then I'll come back and I'll shoot three arrows at a different distance. And just to try to, just to try to put that extra stress on me to focus, you know, focus on my form, focus on my, on my follow through. Um, so that's really kind of what I do to prepare for hunting. That's awesome. So it's on your radar. You found out about CrossFit before I did, man. I think my first exposure was 2005. <clears throat> I've told people before I was probably the bit, biggest critic of CrossFit when I first read it. I just thought it was going to hurt people. And yeah, it was kind of for military guys, really. I mean, sure. And it wasn't for me. I was more of like a strength and conditioning guy. And uh-huh. um <clears throat> Long story short, is it kind of flipped everything on its head when I got involved with it to where I just, my personality is, I burned the ships, I went all in, and I just haven't found anything quite like it. Um, and I think you do need to kind of modify it to where you're at and tweak it. And the older I get, the less riskier movements I do. I kind yeah. of have to, yeah. you know, weigh and balance risk versus benefit. So, you know, I'm still doing some of the crazy stuff, but, you know, I've backed off considerably on some other things. And um, one thing that gets overlooked when you talk about the physical preparation is that mental side. And I've talked about kind of CrossFit, how some of the workouts just are shitty and you ha- you don't want to do it. It's like the least uh favorable thing you want to do that day but you do it you grind and you do it in the name of better elk hunting at least i do and i feel like i get some mental strength reps if you will and i don't know if people are born mentally tough i typically don't think they are i feel like you need reps um what are you doing between the ears just to stay mentally sharp as we age and stay you know you're you have a pretty extensive military background you've gotten some reps You've done some things, but you know, like anything, you don't want atrophy. You got to keep those reps going. Do you feel like the workouts you're doing are sufficient to make you mentally stronger throughout the year? It's funny. I, I, I almost think half, like 50% of the workout is to train myself mentally that that's speaking personally. Um, and then the other 50% is, is physical. And so I, I do a couple things like, I generally know, I generally know like what I want to accomplish during the week as far as workouts, but I couldn't tell you exactly like on Tuesday, I'm going to do this workout. Um, I generally try to figure out what I'm going to do 
um, when I'm, when I'm in a very comfortable place, right? Because you can be really brave to yourself when you're in a comfortable place and you're sitting there like, Oh yeah, I'm going to do like, you know, wall ball. And then I'm going to run a quarter mile. I'm going to do seven of those. And then I'm going to, you know, come back and do this and that. And where the mental toughness for me comes in is when I walk into my gym, cause I, I've got, I've got a place at my house and, um, and I got that workout that I thought of yesterday or, you know, even that day when I was eating lunch and I look at it and I'm like, what idiot, <laughs> this was a good idea. And so where my mental toughness is, my, my goal to myself is that I do the workout and I don't quit. And if I said seven rounds, then I do seven rounds. I don't stop at five. And, and, you know, or my, you know, a buddy says, Hey, I did this workout. I'm like, man, that, that, that sounds like it sucks. And then I'm like, but that's the next workout I'm going to do. And then I force, I don't want to say force myself to do it, but I force myself to complete it. Even if I'm not feeling good, you know, maybe I'll back off on, on the intensity or something like that, but I, I will, I will grind it out. And I think, I think you're right. Those, those reps mentally and physically like over and over and over and over. I mean, it's important because it's, I just think it's important. I, the atrophy I think is a great, great term for, for what it is. You know, you lose your edge, um, real quick. It has definitely been my edge. Like I said, I'm not the world's best archer. I got a lot to still learn when it comes to elk hunting, but I kind of put the cap, you know, the feather in my cap on fitness. I just lean on it. It's my greatest ally in the mountains. And I love kind of what you said there that, and I, and I experienced this too. And I hope people understand is like, my workouts get written up and then when it's time to actually execute them, there is literally a conversation, a negotiation between weakness <laughs> whispering in your ear saying, you know what, let's negotiate on this, cut that down to only three rounds or maybe we can lighten that load there. And it's like, you know what? No, I'm, I wrote it up. Maybe I'm not feeling the greatest today, but I'm going to do it. Like you said, back down on the intensive, but I'm going to complete it in the name of mental toughness reps. So yeah. I'm so glad you said that. I completely, I'm in the same boat and it happens way more than I'd like to admit. I know. Yeah, no, me, me too. But you know, Dan, because you're, you know, you're basically a professional strength and conditioning coach, right? I mean, and maybe that's not the exact term, but you're a pro, this is what you do for your living. Um, how critical is it though for you, you know, like if somebody, so it's, let's just call it close to July one elk season here in Montana, I think starts the first or second. So you have two to two months, 60 days. I mean, if people are starting to think right now that they're going to have to get their, their knees and ankles and backs and all these joints and tendons and all these things like strengthen to go carry 60 pounds. Like I, I think they're kind of doing themselves a disservice. Shouldn't they be doing this year round to, to kind of keep all that, to yeah. keep all that strong? Yeah, so I would probably be more of a contrarian view when it comes to like the strength and conditioning because that's what I am. I I will say that yeah, that's at the end of the day, I'm a strength and conditioning coaches, and all strength and conditioning coaches at pro level, they they wanted to use the term called periodization, where you build and you peak. And I kind of have grown to have a contrarian view on that. I don't believe in that. I want to be more ready, three sixty five. Uh-huh. And, and that's kind of what I would call it is I want to be ready at any time in the year for John Barklow to give me a call and say, Dan, load your pack up. We're going to go do a three-day 
bomb run and these mountains, regardless of the time of year, I want to be, okay, let's do it. And I feel like that's important. And the other thing I wanted to bring up is the trajectory that I'm trying to go for is a low trajectory, a long-term hunting career. And I don't necessarily think I can argue to some of the people that will post social media like, you don't need to do this or that for hunting. I drink, you know, every Friday, Saturday night, and I go and get a bull every year. Yes, you do. I don't know if you're going to be able to do that into your 40s, into your 50s, 60s. And when you finally retire, or if you get an opportunity to retire, will you be able to enjoy the outdoors? And more importantly, pass on our traditions that are literally going away in front of our eyes. And I don't want, I don't have to bring that up, but it's the truth, right? I mean, like hunting's yeah. not growing. Sure doesn't seem like it. And yeah. uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm all about the low trajectory when it comes to fitness. And what, to me, that means being ready year-round, not peaking right before September and then starting your, down, <laughs> your downhill slide for the rest of the year until you get off your ass in August. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, I can tell you, you know, that as, as the years go by, if you find yourself in a hole physically – it is harder to dig out of like that hole gets deeper. It doesn't get shallower. And so I don't want to say fear, but I, I guess maybe it is like my, you know, one of my biggest fears is like getting out of shape or like finding myself in a hole that I can't get out of. I want to hunt. Like you said, I want to hunt way into my later years. And the people that say, well, I can, I can drink and smoke or whatever the case may be, or I don't have to work out. I can just go in there and I get a bull every year, I say, you know what? Great. I can't. And I want to stack every odd. I I care about the activity so much. I'm so passionate about it that I want to do everything I can to put all the odds in my favor, you know, and I'm a bit of a OCD personality. So probably that has something to do with it. But, you know, I want to shoot year round because I don't want to have any excuses. I want to work out year round because I don't want to have any excuses and work on my gear and, you know, invest in new technology, whatever it is, because I want to stack the odds in my favor. I'm just not that person that can sit on the couch and do nothing and then and then just go hunt two or three days a year and kill a bull. Like I love the activity so much. I want to do it and participate in it any way I can year round. Dude, I you're preaching to the choir, man. I, I think I, know uh, I am too. Yeah, <laughs> we're definitely wired the same way. I have definitely been accused of being a little neurotic OCD, but I think a lot <laughs> of us are, and we've we're blessed. We're so blessed to have found this thing called elk hunting because there's more people that don't even know what we're talking about. But once you're blessed with the elk hunting gift. I mean, it is a gift, and you should not squander a second in the mountains due to physical, mental weakness, and uh, control everything you can control, which is awesome, man. And, and I think your attitude will be, I think just your morale, everything's better when you're more fit and you're enjoying it, but yeah, I think we, we beat that horse pretty good there. Uh, well, let's finish, John, with kind of just kind of going over your personal plans for 2018. You said your fall is kind of starting to materialize. What are you, what are you looking forward to? Where might you go for elk this year? So I have a, um, my, my buddy's going to come down from Alaska. We're going to hunt uh, antelope here in Montana, so that'll be August. And then I'm going to, in Montana, I'm going to head east and, and hunt mule deer for a few days and kind of wait for the, 
you know, elk to kind of percolate a little bit. <laughs> and then I'm going to, and then I'm, I'm meeting two guys and it's funny cause I really haven't, I, I really hunted by myself for a decade plus until I got the job that I have now. And, you know, you, you have, you meet so many other guys like mine. So I end up hunting with a few people that I haven't in the past. So I'm going to meet a couple guys and go hunt here in Montana for elk. Um, we're trying to line up something, Dan. I, I can't say too much, but I, I might have the opportunity to go hunt Utah this year for elk. Um, I probably don't even want to say it cause I don't want to jinx it. So I'm hoping that may happen. But, um, but then my, my biggest, my biggest trip of the year is, uh, I'm going to head to British Columbia and, and hunt moose, um, with one of our athletes. And I'm really, I'm really stoked for that hunt. It's going to be a, it's going to be a fly in 10 day hike out moose hunt. Oh, and, and it is going to be, it should be epic. And, um, uh, D- Dustin Rowe is, uh, is, is the athlete's name. He's got a, he bought a concession a few years ago. It's called backcountry BC and beyond. But, um, and he's like, no, he says, come up the last hunt. And he goes, you're just going to fly in and meet me and a couple other guys. And we're going to hunt our way out. And he goes, it's going to be awesome. So that's really the hunt. I mean, I'm preparing for all of them, but I have, you know, how sometimes as your season goes on, and you're hunting a lot, you, you find you're not shooting as many arrows and you're not working out as much because you've kind of done it in preparation. Um, and then kind of sometimes by the end of elk season, you're not as in as good a shape as when you went in. And I have to kind of like keep that up because this moose hunt is in October. So I got to hunt the whole month of September and keep on it and then be ready to go do this epic thing in October. So that that's the plans I have right now. I'm really blessed and, and excited to have the opportunity. I'm so pumped for that last one, man. That is going to be huge. And, you know, I've told people that same thing you just said is that I actually go into elk season in better shape and I come out of it in worse shape. And they're looking at me like, how is that possible? But it's just the truth. That's <laughs> that's the level of preparation you're doing that speaks volumes to your your work ethic, your personality, your character. And I that's the people. I like hard workers. And that's who I want to get on here, man. And I know you've been on a lot of podcasts, a lot but I know you probably haven't talked about the things we've talked about, and it's been no, no, pure I gold. I appreciate your time. I know you're busy. I'm going to stop the recording here and um, chat with you for a second. But for anything else for 2018 that you can share as far as the Apex system, can you just finish with kind of going over that? I know I just got my hands on it uh, for Bear. Pretty pumped about a couple new, I'm going to call them inventions. But uh, just kind of finish up with telling guys about that Apex system. I know you were behind that quite a bit. Yeah, so kind of had to figure out something. I had to figure out a way to provide a quieter solution for us bow hunters, um, but also to deliver on the durability commitment that, you know, we have here at Sitka. And we just couldn't find anything. And so, like I said earlier in, in the podcast, we developed this textile and I had this idea. Um, and so what you see is the apex system and it's a hoodie and a pant, but it's also a pack. And, um, so if, if, you know, people value quiet above all else, then I would say the apex is absolutely the system you should look at. Uh, we incorporated some new midweight merino wool. We've got this new polyester, um, 
material for the pants, you know, elbow pads, knee pads, face masks, all kinds of awesome stuff like that. I've, I've been fortunate enough. This is, um, so I guess this bear season would be, would have been my second like hunting season in it. So I've been able to hunt in it an entire year now. Um, just, just exceptional, um, really delivered on everything I wanted. And then the pack, it just has some nice features for the bow hunter, uh, a cam cable to rest your, your bow. And if you get in those setups where you're getting in a stare down with a, with a bull, um, you know, how many times you sit there and you're, you know, no matter how much you work out, you're holding that eight or 10 pound bow in your hand and you get in a stare down with a bull at 15 yards and inevitably he turns, you know, or starts to run away and you have one opportunity to shoot and man, you don't want to squander that. And so if you're tired and shaking already, so anyways, the cam cable helps with that. And, and, uh, yeah, so it, it's been, it's been really well received so far and I'm, I'm excited to, to hear the feedback from, from guys and, and, uh, and see some pictures of some stuff they put on the ground. Definitely. So little Dan over here likes the apex hoodie a lot. The kangaroo pouch is yep. pure, pure gold and genius. Um, and I'm old school. I still love the old little zips on the arm. Maybe I gotta uh, yep. plant, plant that like seed diaphragm balls and stuff. Yep, I love throwing elk diaphragms in there. But um, okay. that kangaroo pouch is money. And then you can take the elbow pads out. But I'm sure gonna keep oh, those yeah. in yeah. for my antelope hunts coming up in August. Yeah, I'm gonna yeah. be using the shit out of those. And yeah, pretty cool stuff, man. Well, thanks for coming on. And like I said, I'll chat afterwards. But. I know you're a busy guy, and uh, good luck this fall, especially can't wait to see that uh, moose hunt unfold. That's going to be epic. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Dan. It was fun. Awesome.